Why are we rich? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Art Carden. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Art Carden. Art is professor of economics at the Brock School of Business at Samford University and a frequent contributor to Forbes.com, among other popular magazines and scholarly journals. He is also a senior fellow with the American Institute for Economic Research and the Fraser Institute, a research fellow with the Independent Institute, a senior fellow with the Beacon Center of Tennessee, a senior research fellow with the Institute of Faith, Work, and Economics, and co-editor of the Southern Economic Journal. His first book, co-authored with Deidre McCloskey and titled Leave Me Alone and I'll Make You Rich, How the Bourgeois Deal Enriched the World, will form the basis of our conversation today. Art, welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to have you on. So Art, our question today is, why are we rich? Your book with Deidre McCloskey first actually starts talking about the things that aren't happening today and other misconceptions about some economic history and the answers to these questions. And then it rounds it off a little more toward the end. For the sake of our conversation today, I actually kind of want to do something fun and sort of unpack that in reverse. And I I think you'll see why as as we go through the conversation what I have in mind. At, At the end of the day, you come to me and say you have a deal, Art. Yes. It's the bourgeois deal. What is that? Yes. So the bourgeois deal says, leave me alone and I'll make you rich. Basically, let me buy low, let me sell high, let me innovate, let me come up with cool new stuff. And don't expect me to ask anybody's permission for it. Don't expect me to get a dozen different licenses. Don't expect me to get it approved by a hundred different people. Don't expect me to get 500 people to sign off on it. Don't expect me to to sort of let, uh, let the professional chin stroking crowd um, have veto power over my innovation. Just let me do it and keep the profits or absorb the losses. I'm willing to take that risk. And in the end, we'll all be rich. So the idea is, I guess, you and I shake hands to leave each other alone. So perhaps we can shake hands later on the market. But other than that, I leave you alone. Pretty much. So the best example that I've seen of this in the last couple of decades is some of the innovations that Apple has introduced, like the iPod, the iPhone, and the iPad. They basically didn't have to ask anybody's permission to bring these things into the market. And now Apple is probably the dominant technology company in the world because they came up with a little music player that you can fit in your pocket. If you go back and actually watch Steve Jobs' speech where he introduces the iPod, it's remarkable and it's kind of quaint and it's kind of cute. But then you realize this was a truly revolutionary device. Yes, We've been listening to music for a very long time, but the idea of uh, the idea of being able to carry around that much music in your pocket was mind blowing. Uh, my first iPod was a video iPod and the thought of being able to watch Ted talks and stuff like that on a device I could carry around in my pocket was simply unbelievable. Um, then of course the iPhone as I had a student once who referred to it or he said, it's, it's interesting that we all carry around a pocket supercomputer. And that is, is again, simply, simply amazing that we're able to do that. You know, the very word podcast is, is a neologism that comes from these sorts of technological innovations. And I remember the, uh, the iPad specifically, when that came out, um, that was especially interesting with, with respect to kind of what we think about as the bourgeois deal, because Steve Jobs stands up and says, this is the iPad. 
And a whole bunch of people like me who are sort of like, again, like I said, professional chin stroking, kind of academic idea folks are like, well, what's it for? Yeah, there was a lot of ridicule What's about it, it actually. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, first every a lot of people thought the name was stupid and had a lot of a lot of fun at the expense of of, of Apple there. But yeah, people were like, okay, what exactly is it? Um, I think it was Rain Wilson tweeted something like, you know, I wish it I wish it had a keyboard and folded up, or I wish it was a little bit smaller and could make phone calls. You know, kind of just, just to say, okay, we're not really sure what this thing is. And now um, now I, I can't imagine living without my touchscreen mobile devices and, and things of that nature. Every, all of our kids have iPads. They have, believe me, as a father of three small children, um, iPads have revolutionized long car rides. Uh, if, if, for, if nothing else, if nothing else, they've been, they've been fantastic for that. But uh, granted, I mean, it, Apple and, and tech companies live in a world of strict intellectual property rules and, and all sorts of things like that. But you know, they didn't have to get didn't have to ask anybody's permission before they rolled out any of these devices and they changed the world and made us all better off as a result. So they, they took that deal and went off, as we said, we, we left them alone, largely speaking, and, and they were able right. to do things like that and continuing to trace some sort of definitions here. And as we go along, we're going to get more specific and into examples. But the book also gets into the idea of sort of the, the a form of dignity that comes with this deal, sort of the bourgeois yes. dignity. Can you tie that into what we've just been talking about so far? Yeah. So so I have a so I teach at a Baptist university. And, and of course, I have a lot of students who want to want to change the world. And there are a lot of people who mean very, very well. They want to change the world. And when we think about what is dignified, though, um, a lot of times we think about people who go to become preachers or people who become politicians or people who go to work for non-government organizations. We don't think the way that we probably should about people who pass the CPA exam in the United States and become certified public accountants or people who just start small businesses. Um, that said, though, that said, though, when, when you do look at a lot of political rhetoric, there's at least a decent amount of lip service paid to innovators, paid to small business people, paid to, to folks who have to meet a payroll, paid to people who are who are getting up and doing their work. And this and this this is historically unique. Merchants and innovators uh, up until relatively recently weren't didn't really have a whole lot of dignity. Um, Shylock was. Uh, in, in The Merchant of Venice was not a sympathetic character under any circumstances. And it was, uh, first of all, I mean, the fact that he was a Jew was uh, a big problem when Shakespeare's writing the play, but also just the fact that he was a moneylender and a merchant and a profit-obsessed guy. Th these were things that that um, that made him a bad guy of The Merchant of Venice. On the note you just said, I, I think one thing that was really cool, I remember this from the book now, although I didn't write it down, one of the things that you guys said in the book was the the idea of even the way our language and, and the way we refer mm -hmm. to things has changed over time. And we'll, we'll talk about specifically the great enrichment and trace that in just a sec. But before we get to that, I like the, the one example you chose in the book, too, was like the word honest. What, what is an honest person or yes. an honest man? Like, you know, even if we just think of what that means to any layman today versus what it meant two, three, four hundred years ago, even the culture has shifted with our bourgeois deal and our bourgeois dignity. Right. Yeah. When you think of honest, I mean, you think of somebody who just tells the truth. Somebody who, somebody who doesn't lie to you, someone whose word is their bond. And historically, though, honest meant, you know, meant respectable and lofty and aristocratic. Right. Uh, Iago, honest Iago in Othello. Again, so Shakespeare's kind of making a bit of a play on, on, on the word there. But um, when they talk about, you know, making an honest woman out of her or being an honest man or something like that, they're referring to someone's social rank and status and dignity, not their penchant for truth telling. 
And when you think again about, so like this notion of greatness of soul for people who were typically dignified, you know, telling the truth wasn't really, it's like, okay, so what, you know, um, you weren't, if you're Henry V, bound to be truthful in all things. Ultimately, you and Deirdre say in the book, you know, we're rich because of a change in ethics and rhetoric and ideology, you know, and, and we just talked about the honesty point right there, too. So although many people have make a claim to what has made our society rich or as wealthy as it is today relative to past ones, um, you guys are ultimately claiming that the great enrichment was from the kinds of things we're just talking about. So so at the front of that, can you take us through number one, just trace real quickly what you guys truly mean by the great enrichment and how what we've been talking about so far connects into that so deeply and to your, your folks' claim is the actual primary driving force of that great enrichment. So the great enrichment refers to the roughly tenfold increase in daily per capita income globally in about the last 200, 250 years and the 30 to 100 fold increase in daily per capita income in countries like the United States and Canada over that time period. Um, it refers not to increasing wealth for the descendants of kings Rather, it refers to uh, it refers to increasing wealth, higher standards of living, longer lives, more literacy, opportunities for better lives for people like us. Um, I would imagine you're. I'm guessing you're not descended from any crown heads. Not that I know of. Right? Yeah, I, I, I'm not. Um, yet the mere fact that we can read is is is, is simply remarkable. The fact that uh, you know, God willing, I won't have to bury any children again. You know, that's this is. Um, something that's historically unique. The fact that if I want a cup of coffee, that uh, basically, even in Birmingham, Alabama, which is not the coffee capital of the world, certainly, basically, I just swing $3 and, and, and I hit somebody who wants to sell me a cup of coffee. It's incredible that we are this rich, we are this long lived, and that we have um, so many opportunities. When we, when we refer to a great enrichment, we're referring not just to a great material enrichment, but we're also referring to a great moral enrichment or a great spiritual enrichment insofar as what has happened has enabled almost unlimited scope for um, for human flourishing. Again, I mentioned literacy a minute ago. Um, something like 85% of the world's adult population can read now, where it was maybe 10%, 15% just a couple of centuries ago. Um, even though we, we do tend to still love hierarchy and rank as a species, the world, like the world's gotten big enough that everybody has, like everybody has their own sort of little hill they can be on top of. You can be, you can be like the world's leading expert on this one tiny little thing, or you can be the go-to person for this one sort of esoteric hobby or interest. And that's there's been so much perfusion that almost anybody can have that now. And, and to add to your point there, it's, it's sort of a quote from your book. Uh, you and Deidre say that the world is indeed making poverty history. Uh, it is today and has has in the past. And again, there's a lot of people that will throw around different ideas as, as to why this is happening. Um, some people just say, oh, it's just the technology or it's just this right. or just that or just, I don't know, even today, financial innovation and in, in, on markets or something like that. But, but in reality, as you're saying, if you don't have that bourgeois deal and that bourgeois dignity at the bottom, all this stuff, everything and all the reasons different books and different people point to it just it just pales in comparison to that seed that's really the point there right yeah bourgeois dignity and bourgeois liberty really 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 matter a lot um a lot of the other causes that people put forward so things like you know, like science and technology 
for example, the, the way that technological history goes is for, for most of time, we have figured out, like we, we've seen something work and then la only later on figured out how. So we, so we figure out how to mix a good drink or we figure out how to bake bread or we figure out how to, uh, I don't know, make a steam engine work. And, and only later do we really figure out the science and the scientific principles behind it. Um, uh, so there, so every so often on, on uh, like ESPN and other sort of sports channels, they'll, they'll talk about the science of this particular athlete or, or uh, what's going on. I remember seeing a little clip of Lionel Messi and it's talking about here's what's going on when he's doing this thing and then he's accelerating and all this other stuff. Right. Right. And it's going, yeah, like it, it's like going into the physics of all this that I, I frankly don't remember, but um, Lionel Messi, Lionel Messi might be a little bit better as a result of innovations in physics and things like that, but it's the innovation, the innovations in physics didn't make him Lionel Messi. Um, similarly, we've, we've had a lot of innovations in sports with, uh, with data analytics in recent years. Um, you know, the 1927 New York Yankees, though, they were still the 1927 New York Yankees, even without the data analytics. And of course, some people might be listening to conversations so far and be like, okay, great. You know, these guys are just talking about what, why, why capitalism, quote unquote, has been so good to, to us since it's uh, early days of being recognized as a system like that, et cetera. But one thing I want to bring up into this part of our conversation here, the use of your Deidre's term, innovism. And how you explain innovism, not capitalism, is your preferred term because, quote, capitalism is a scientific mistake compressed into a single word. And you go on to say, it is dramatically misleading coinage by the enemies of liberty and furthermore, and of the sadly misguided among our friends who think they support liberty, but in their statism hitched to capital fundamentalism and end up not supporting liberty. So, of course, that, that front part, especially to our listeners, will be quite familiar as to perhaps where this, this word has come from and how people do sometimes use that idea of capitalism and capitalist as a slur. It's actually that second part I'm quite interested in digging into a little further. The idea that even our quote-unquote friends who say they support liberty and are capitalist, yeah. what do you mean by they, they hitch to capital fundamentalism and they're actually missing your your folks' point? So, so okay, so this is, this is one of the problems that we run into here is there's no good word to describe what we what we're going after here innovism is the best we were able to come up with and even that is still a little bit clunky um capitalism capitalism is wrong or it's a problem because it emphasizes capital it emphasizes capital accumulation um it emphasizes you know, in, in the case of the marxist and, and the left very broadly it emphasizes you know, capital as a social process and uses sort of a bunch of kind of weird and frankly obsolete social science to arrive at frankly, weird, weird and bizarre conclusions. From the right, though, a lot of times I think we get the idea, we, we get the idea when we think about capitalism uh, as being like, okay, well, if it's good for business, then right. it's capitalism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if, it, if it's good for, if it's good for the business community, if the Chamber of Commerce approves, then it's, then it, it's clearly like pro-market, good for business sort of stuff. But um as we very, very, very well know, when you get private entities like corporations or other firms into bed with the state, they create all sorts of, you know, they, they do all sorts of terrible things, frankly. They get subsidies or special protections or uh, laws and rules that protect them from competition. You know, Adam Smith, you know, Adam Smith fam famously said, people of the same trade seldom meet together uh, without the conversation devolving into some conspiracy against the public to, uh, to raise prices. And uh, if we emphasize the capital part of capitalism too much, then we miss that, in fact, actually, what is 
what's really making this go is a system that is not good at all for the capitalists. Right. It is a system that that creatively destroys what they may have worked their lives to build and uh, does so to the benefit of all of us. The economist William Nordhaus, who won the Nobel Prize a couple of years ago, estimated that um, if you if you took the social value of innovation, only about two percent of it ends up in the pockets of innovators. The other ninety eight percent of it accrues to the rest of us as uh, just general gains from trade. Pure capitalism would, I think, slow down the rate of innovation in some sense, and um, you know protect and insulate the owners of capital from this sort of competition. In general, though, I, I, I use innovism and capitalism interchangeably because that's what capitalism is the word that most people think of when they think of what makes what has made the United States rich, what's made Canada rich, what's made Europe rich, et cetera. Right. Yeah. Me, me personally, I like the I, I love that I can add innovism to my vocabulary now, but I also like like to always d- distinguish in my conversation. I tell people I'm talking about free markets here, innovism now, not necessarily capitalism, the way people might think of it. I like the way you round that part off it in, in the book by basically saying as you were just saying, you know, what ha- makes us rich ultimately is not the accumulation of capital or the fact that we have lots of it, but quote, good new ideas for investing capital. These are the opportunities people seize upon. It's not just the fact, oh, I, I have money. Therefore, you know, we're good. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. The world is better off today. Uh, and, and specifically for for this question, even I will say that the, the poorest are people in, even in situations where, where they might be minorities and even ha- have tougher situations going on than the majoritarian cultures are, are better off today than the people in that same echelon like hundreds of years ago. So that, this really isn't in question, especially when it comes to material wealth. Yet, yet two right. things continue to sell, as you guys noted in the book, um, nostalgia and pessimism. I want to yeah. kind of separate them and talk about them because I think this is really key to, and it blocks people's thinking on why we're rich. So why don't you talk a bit about nostalgia? What, what did you mean about nostalgia as a thing that keeps selling and that people keep relying on to understand today versus yesterday? Yeah, there's this idea that you know, things used to be great. You know, Things used to be great and wonderful and the future is scary. And if only we could go back to the past when everything was awesome, that would be just, you know, that that if we could make America great again, so to speak, that that would be, uh, you know, that, that this is this is what what society should do, and uh, so for example, a thing that came across came across my Facebook feed this morning, and I shared it was a picture of a merry-go-round from like the seventies or eighties, and uh, they're not on a whole lot of playgrounds anymore because they're incredibly unsafe, and it's really easy to get nostalgic about old playground equipment. <laughs> it's true, yeah, example. you see that but, all over the internet, actually. Yeah, yeah, and, 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 yeah, and, and I and I am. I mean, merry-go-rounds were fun. Um, <clears throat> But it is, yeah, they've in some sense been regulated out of existence. But also, if you go back to 1987, the world's a very, very different place then. Um, And, you know, we don't have the same drugs. We don't have the same technology. We don't have the same sorts of of kind of ways of dealing with some of the injuries that were inevitable uh, on playground equipment and things like that. So nostalgia is is misplaced. Um, I think if you were... Um, uh, well, so, so when we lived in Memphis, uh, uh, we had a pastor who said that he was, he was asked once, you know, I guess one of his congregants asked, if you could live in any period in American history, when would it be? And this is in you know, 2007 or eight or nine. And he says, as a black man right now. And this is, this is one of the things that suggests to me that, that a lot of our nostalgia is misplaced. Um, 
I'm sure it would have been fantastic. I'm, I'm sure that, that Birmingham, Alabama would have been nice as a white guy in the 50s or 60s. But, you know, if I were um, if I were Fred Shuttlesworth or a member of his family, I would imagine I, I would imagine telling a very, very different story. So one, um, we tend to see the past through rose colored glasses. And one of the reasons for that, I think, is because, OK, everything sort of worked out. And we can look back and say, okay, it worked out. The future, we don't know if it's going to work out. So that's kind of, so, so that, that's in sort of new and scary. Um, and then also we tend to, we tend to massively underestimate how good things have gotten um, with higher life expectancy, with the fact that polio no longer exists, with um, you know, clean air. And even, even, that might be, even that might be due to regulation. It's because we got rich enough to demand things like clean air and water. Um, Nostalgia is is seriously overrated. I think that as you're saying that, it reminds me of this. There's actually you were talking about like Steve Jobs keynote before, so it just reminds me. There's I'm not sure if you've seen it. There's a really great interview. I think it's the only time this happened, but Steve Jobs and Bill Gates are being interviewed on the same stage at a digital conference. And at one point in in the interview, the interviewer asked them both, "Hey guys, like at the end of the day, like it's great we have computers. I think this was post 2007. So I said, you know, iPhones, tablets, whatever. But there's still sort of this just desktop paradigm we're all stuck to. When do you see this radically changing?" And the interviewer kind of pushed the point a couple of times. And at some points, Bill Gates just said, look, like, I think you're underestimating because you've lived with it. The degree of innovation that has even happened from like 1998 to, to 2011, right? Yeah. He said, if we sent yeah. you away and, you, and in 1998 and put you in like a coma or something and brought you back out to 2011, even like today, we probably think 2011 is even farther back. He would say you'd be blown away, right? Yeah. Well, I remember my, my kids being scandalized when they learned that you couldn't pause live TV. <laughs> the notion that if you wanted to watch a show, if you wanted to watch WandaVision or if you wanted to watch The Mandalorian or something like that, like you had to be in a particular place at a particular time in front of a particular box um, tuned to a particular channel. You couldn't just carry around. Yeah, again, you couldn't watch it on your pocket supercomputer. You couldn't watch it whenever you wanted to. You couldn't say, "Okay, let's watch another episode." Um, again, these are things that we these are things that we take for granted. And of course, individually, you know, individually, none of this is is really that revolutionary. I mean, I, I, I can I can imagine living a perfectly fine life without streaming services because uh, I led what I think was a perfectly fine life before streaming services, but. Um, they're examples of this, this massive sort of tidal wave of innovation that has made life in 2021 so radically different from and so much better than life in 2011 or 2001 or 1991 or just keep going back. It gets, it gets easier to make the case. Yeah, absolutely. I think we just said there's also very interesting too, but tying into the nostalgia point is I think a lot of people uh, specific types of people will say, oh, well, I could live without that. I could. And that kind of fuels the nostalgia, right? It sort of distracts from the, the main question we're exploring today, which why are we rich and how rich are we? People say, well, we were fine in the 60s without all this stuff, but they're not really considering just how, how quote unquote rich that makes us just because they can live with it doesn't mean it hasn't had a huge impact, right? Well, yeah, you might have been fine in the 60s. Um, you know, there are a lot of people who died of diseases that we now can prevent and treat pretty routinely who were who were not fine in the 60s. Uh, and I think that's 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 something that we we don't really we don't really take as seriously. And then then also I think a lot of times people people conflate things were easier when I was a kid and didn't have any responsibilities with things were great a long time ago. 
Um, I remember reading something when someone said, you know, back when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s, you know, you never heard anybody talking about drug use or teen pregnancy or all this other stuff. And like, because you were eight years old and you don't talk about those things in front of children. That's why you didn't hear anybody talking about it. He's like, yeah, I just remember sunsets and running in and being called in for dinner. Yeah, I hope nobody was talking to you about teen pregnancy when you're eight years old. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, I tell my students because they, they're, uh, of course, they love this. Um uh, it, every it, in the semester, at some point, I might say something like, "How many of you guys are really stressed out?" The hands go up. How many have a lot, lot to do? Some hands go up. All really stressed out, really overwhelmed. I say, "Cheer up!" In about ten or fifteen years, we have kids and a mortgage. It will be so much easier. And yeah, we probably both know people that once they leave, that sort of stressful. Um, dep- depends where they go, of course, with their academic career. But at least when they perhaps leave undergraduate life and enter sort of a different sort of tier of duties and responsibilities they, they look back at those essays and that studies not as the most stressful thing eh? <laughs> <laughs> right right yeah. right I, at a high level we're heading towards our break here but because i have a sp- couple specific points about pessimism but before we hit the break at a high level you got you make a point in the book to discuss pessimism sort of paired with this sort of nostalgia i guess this is just ultimately the idea that even though we're surrounded by these great riches and an amazing standard of life there's still this sort of sinking feeling that that sets in with a lot of people, isn't there? Yeah, there is. And and this is kind of, on one level, it's kind of hard to understand. Um, we, things have gotten so great now. Uh, I, I guess maybe people look back and say, well, it, things have gotten so great, this can't possibly go on forever. And the spoiler alert is, yes, it can, in fact, actually go on forever. Um, that combined with the, the tendency to draw really, really, really bad inferences about how about how about, about the sort of the, the risks that we face and the objective reality of the world that we inhabit from things like a 24-hour news cycle and a constant barrage of bad news from Facebook and Twitter and things like that. Right. Where again, you hear someone saying, oh, you know, you never heard about teen pregnancy or whatever when I was little. Well, okay, even then, like adults didn't hear about horrible things happening on the other side of the country or the other side of the world because we didn't have again, 24-hour news stations beaming it directly at us all the time. Um, something, you know, something, terribly, something terrible happens in a country with a name that like, most people probably can't spell, and suddenly they learn about it. And They can go watch the footage on YouTube, right? Yeah, exactly, right. Yeah, watch it over and over and over and over again. And one, this gives people a, a very misleading idea about how bad things are, and it also gives them a very misleading idea about how bad things can get or how things are going. And that's actually an excellent place to take our break. So we're going to do so right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Art Cardin today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Joe Aragona, Ken Dubian, and Chris Rondolo. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task.
Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Art Carden today. So, Art, I think that the first half of the conversation was really good. I enjoyed tracing a lot of the ideas that you and Deidre McCloskey had in, in the book. We talked about the great enrichment, innovism, uh, why capitalism might not be the best word to describe everything we're talking about today. And, and we sort of ended off the first half by talking about just, just how great things are today relative to the past, especially. We talked about nostalgia and pessimism, pessimism at a high level. One thing I want to talk about now is is getting a bit more into pessimism, actually, because one thing I really liked that the book did is that you 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 traced different times very specific pessimisms have come into play, especially over the past 150, 200 years. If we have a sense of pessimism today in 2021 about anything, it's not as if that other people didn't have a pessimism before. I, right. I actually like to, of course, there's there's more information in the book and we always encourage listeners that we can't read the book here, so go check out their book. But I want to trace at least some of that stuff at a high level. It was interesting to me that you can do this in stages. So right back to 1798 to 1848, um, you said that one of the main pessimisms at the time was that the idea was the poor were fated by Malthusian logic to stay poor. What's going on there? What was the elaborate on that? What's that pessimism that told everyone that that was the reality at the time? Well, it's like Jesus said, the poor you'll always have with you. Um, and, and that was poor in a very, very real sense. Um, there was always pretty much for from from the beginning of time through you know, roughly the 1800s. There was always, always, always a group of desperately, desperately poor people who it seemed like no matter what didn't rise out of peasantry and poverty and things like that. And Thomas Malthus, writing in 1798, his essay on the principle of population, writes a book that describes the world perfectly up until like the day that his book is published. And then it sort of no longer applies because we jump into we jump into this bourgeois deal. If you do have population growing faster than ability to produce food, you know the iron law of diminishing returns is going to is going to lead you into, in, into this Malthusian trap. If you don't have any new ideas, of course, from roughly the 18th century forward, we started getting lots and lots and lots of new ideas. I remember, um, I remember I was watching. I think it was part of Milton Friedman's free to choose lecture circuit, if I remember correctly. And someone, one of the uh, students in the audience, in a very, very honest question, said, "Hey, you know, basic, basic statistical logic here." He said, "You know, uh, I read this thing. There's actually so much less farmland being being produ- uh, you know, farmed now. There's actually so much less space for this, space for that. Sort of that that even in the 1970s, I think, is when this lecture circuit was happening. That sort of same logic and you know milton had to take them through okay you think about how much difference there is in the amount of yield someone can get from that square meter now that's really the key to unlocking this this discussion right yes yeah and those increases in yield have come from better ideas better ideas for how we organize production better ideas for how we combine genes and and things of that nature um when people talk about losing farmland the sort of unspoken assumption is well if we if we lose if we lose farmland that means that we that we won't have we won't have food we'll all starve to death at some point in the future but again given that agriculture has become so much more productive we don't need that much farmland that you know in a lot of cases the the, the better use of the farmland is as housing or transportation or warehouses or something like that um, what we're doing is we're wasting resources and doing so conspicuously when we do things like conserve farmland uh, for farmland's sake. And then another kind of pessimism, another one I enjoyed that you you folks noted was that, um, I'm just getting it here in my note, you, you noted this happened in 1993 and in the 70s and the 90s, and especially after 2008, there was this idea that that's it. The final crisis yes. of quote unquote capitalism is at hand. It's all over. Party's done. Yeah. And because, okay, so we had, we had the final crisis of capitalism 
I don't know that anybody's anybody has referred to this in the current period of COVID as as the as a final crisis of capitalism. I'd have to Google it, but yeah, the Great Recession was the final crisis of capitalism, and before it, the recession before that was the final crisis of capitalism, and before that, you know, the tech bubble was the final crisis of capitalism, and it just keeps going on and on and on and on and on. And every time there are a couple of bumps in the road, you get sort of a lot of think pieces about why Karl Marx was right or John Maynard Keynes was right or why some sort of neglected intellectual is the guy who predicted all this stuff and explains why it happened. And then we get over it. And now per capita income wages, uh, wages are, are higher than they've ever been. But again, I have to check, I have to check the data because that may not be strictly true in, 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 in light of COVID, but standards of living have, have increased, have continued their steady upward march um, there is a bit of a cruel irony in that at the beginning of 2020, a lot of economists were celebrating the the end of the first decade in American history without a recession. And then we had the COVID pandemic. But um, a lot of what's happened even during COVID has been not because of any sort of systematic characteristics of free markets, but because of a very specific and concerted global effort to suppress free markets. And uh, that's something I, I don't that I don't think gets enough play. Um, the final crisis of capitalism is kind of always it's always just around the corner, or it's always just about to happen, or it's always just happened. And it turns out that no, no, we markets work, and they get things sorted out, and we go on enjoying higher standards of living even after recessions are over. You know, tying that back to something you said before, I'm wondering how much of this idea of, you know, the, the final crisis of capitalism, or, or or I'll just say for this example, it's going to be very specific, this idea that, you know, markets aren't working, it's over, big failure. How much of this gets conflated with something you were saying before, which is that if the business world looks around and sees, oh, this airline is collapsing, this financial institution yeah. is collapsing, oh no, and then we read our Wall Street Journal and our Business Insider and say, everyone's worried, it's over. I think right. that that's the, as you said before, at that point, we're conflating the the powers, if you will, and the the happenings of innovism with what the biz the current state of the business world is comfortable with. And I think a lot of us sort of rely on their view of things in the Wall Street Journal, wherever else, to tell us how markets are doing. When in reality, markets could be doing great, and some industries could be doing terrible. That's just the fact. That's a very good point. That's a very very good point because you have um, again the, the sort of conceit. That when we think about the final crisis of capitalism, you know, the phrase people that gets used is monopoly capitalism sometimes. And you know, John Kenneth Galbraith, when he was writing The New Industrial State in the 1950s, is talking about these massive corporations that are, you know, <clears throat> that are are, are just going to run everything. But if you look again at the at the top of the Fortune 500, let me just let me just let me Google this real fast. Yeah, sure. I think he published New Industrial State in 1958. This is amazing. Like I can fact check myself in real time and make yeah. sure that I'm not. No, 1967. Sorry, I was thinking about something different. We're richer in but, facts today. There um, you go. Yeah, exactly. Well, this is well, the, so the first time I, I ever did a seminar for the Institute for Humane Studies um, in like 2008, not long before our, our older son were, uh, was born. The rest of the faculty at the IHS thing was fact checking me in real time, like as I was talking, and that helped me realize that. We live in a very, very different world. I mean, very, very different world. Um, yeah, so the top 10 in the Fortune 500, you got Walmart, Amazon, ExxonMobil, Apple, CVS Health, Berkshire Hathaway, United Health Group, McKesson, AT&T. Um, you know, Amazon was, Amazon didn't exist. Walmart 
you know, had existed for five years, I think, when uh, when Galbraith wrote the New Industrial State. Apple didn't exist. Um, I think the, the the stories that we tell about monopoly, um, they tend to be wrong. Um, one of the more interesting pieces of of tech journalism of the last, say, decade and a half or the last two decades is a. I remember around the time that MySpace. Um, first came on the scene, a lot of people said, well, you know, MySpace, MySpace is a natural monopoly. They, they, by the structure of the industry, MySpace is going to dominate social media and nobody's going to be able to come in. MySpace is a natural monopoly. Therefore, they must be regulated to the public utility. And now I, I don't know anybody who still has an active MySpace page. Me neither. Similarly, yeah, similarly, yeah, sure, Facebook is big. But they're only big until the next big thing comes along. Or, or I guess until they can use, as we were saying, the government or some other ways to entrench whatever it is they're right. doing. Right. Um, right. So, yeah, and there's more sort of the old kind of pessimisms in, in the book you folks wrote, and, and, and people can go check that out. I want to shift a little bit to, to, to you've also listed that there are these old pessimisms that, that's, that the humanity, I guess, has cycled through. There's also new pessimisms now, of course. You know, right. you talk about environmental decay as an, existential, as an existential threat to humanity, humanity being ruined by certain types of new, if you will, inequality, uh, technological unemployment from artificial intelligence, you name it. There are, of course, new pessimisms, and I'm not trying to sound dismissive. Of course, it's good that people have concerns and are aware of what's going on in the world. But what would you say to somebody that's coming to you? It's like, okay, fine, Art, those old pessimisms, they maybe didn't come true, but we have a new set of problems now. What do we do? Well, the first thing I would say is go to Amazon or wherever books are wherever books are sold and buy a copy of Leave Me Alone and I'll Make You Rich. <laughs> good start. And yeah, yeah. So specifically, and if, if you're worried about environmental impact, be sure to get a copy, be sure to get a digital copy. Um, it turns out, actually, I'm, I'm looking at the at Amazon.com for the U.S. and the Kindle price in the U.S. is twenty-one dollars and fifteen cents U.S. The Kindle price in Canada is seventeen dollars and sixty-eight cents Canadian. So, um, yeah. So, if I could find some way to buy Kindle versions in the U.S. in Canada and sell them in the U.S., I could presumably make a tidy profit. But so much of what we have now is digital that um, we're using fewer resources to produce enormous amounts of GDP. John McAfee, I'm forgetting the title of his book off the top of my head, but he talks, he's talking about basically the dematerialization of economic growth, that so much of, so much of the value we're creating is not actual stuff, it's location, or it's getting the right things to the right people in the right places at the right time. So I mentioned Facebook a minute ago, um, like it's almost gotten to the point where Facebook's targeted advertising is the reason to go onto Facebook because I, right. I've, I've gotten so many, I've been introduced to so many products or so many new things that I didn't know existed that have made my life better um, as a result of that. Uh, and it, it, it's the, it's the targeting and the tailoring that's creating the value, not the material stuff that's in there. Um, of course, climate change is a possible problem, and, and I, I admit, as everybody should, that it could be bad, but I don't really see the point in sacrificing a few percentage points of GDP per year for the next century to save a few percentage points of GDP 100 years from now. Um, I think if, if we're thinking about what's really going to solve environmental problems, I think it's going to be creative and free people who are behaving in creative and free ways in free markets. Um, if nothing else, if nothing else, merely the fact that we get richer is going to provide us with the leisure and the income to uh, 
buy and preserve more, buy and consume more environmental amenities. I don't think that uh, I don't think that climate change is an existential threat by uh, any stretch of the imagination. Again, I think I think it could be bad, but um, I fully expect that these are problems we can solve if we don't keep if, if we keep our ethical wits about us and don't sort of hand the reins of power over to um, well-meaning but power-loving environmentalists or, or the government for that matter in a different way and, right. and, I'll, and I'll just add it to your point if, if I may that I think a lot of people here um, you know especially some listening that when they kind of contrast what you just said to other things they've been hearing um, you know they say oh but you know I've heard so much about you know this existential threat if climate changes people will move around industries will collapse you know there might be a high demand for for people moving from one country to another but but I just I want to make sure you don't shortchange your own point here because you live with this in your right. head so it's so obvious to you that what you're talking about again is this idea of markets and individualism. Leave people alone yeah. if they need to move around, invent right. new equipment, etc. You're not worried about General Electric's uh, air conditioner sales in a certain territory. You're worried about people being able to do what they have to do. Exactly, exactly. And and the answer, like I hate to I hate to sound like um, I hate to sound cliched, but in some sense, like the answer is more markets. Um, if people are worried about if people are worried about sea level rise, for example, then we need well functioning markets and coastal real estate. So that they can, so that they can act on that. Um, first of all, those markets would generate the information we might need to to make the right policy. Second of all, if in fact you believe that Miami is going to be underwater in a hundred years, then you can profit from that by buying and selling contracts in Miami real estate deliverable in a hundred years. Um, we don't see people doing that very much, and in a lot of cases, we don't see the kind of the kind of market innovation. That we probably should. Um, <laughs> an example of this happened in the in, in uh, the terror futures market that Robin Hansen tried to design um, in the wake of September 11th, and a lot of people shot it down, or or a lot of people just just revolted and thought it was horrible. The idea that you could buy and sell contracts that would pay off in the event of terrorist attacks, even though it was demonstrable that these would make things. Um, that these would increase our, our ability to deal with, with, with terrorism. A minute ago, you mentioned you mentioned looking at specific industries and things like that, and saying, "Okay, you know, doom is now upon us." It's it's important to keep it's important to keep in mind that something that might look really really big compared to what's in your bank account need not be that big compared to an entire national economy. So. Um, if you see if you see an iconic firm going under, okay, well, that's how that's how innovism works. That's how innovism works is we we replace old things with new things. And while it may very well be that, you know, say Walmart again, uh, Don Boudreaux says he's got this prediction that we, when Walmart when someday when Walmart goes under, people are going to lament the demise of Walmart. He said you, you saw your neighbors at Walmart. You get anything at Walmart, whatever. Um, if Walmart goes under, if, 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 and when Walmart goes under, they're a fairly small part of the U S economy, even though they are on top of the fortune 500. So these, this constant churn, this constant change, um, makes it really easy to focus on the negative without seeing the, the green shoot, so to speak, or without seeing the positive that is uh, coming up behind it. And you can, and you can bet 
a high amount of money that if they're going under for for market forces or under the forces of innovism, they'll be the ones asking for either that bailout or a law that prevents people from selling staples cheaply or something just to make sure that uh, they oh, can I keep their not. just to see that they can keep their position, right? Well, and, and, and this is this is where uh, it, we actually do talk about this a little bit in the book. People talk about business corrupting politics. I think it's the other way around. Politics corrupts business, um, or politics corrupts money, and Walmart is actually a really good, really good example of that. They didn't get politically active until um, Congress threatened free trade, and Microsoft didn't start getting politically active until the Justice Department, or until you know, well, basically until Washington went after them. Um, Amazon is probably was probably not terribly politically active before they became sort of public enemy number one. There's a, a there's a story in one of the biographies of Sam Walton that I've read about how, uh, you know, the, the, of course, they're headquartered in Arkansas. And at one point, while Bill Clinton is governor, you know, the phone rings and it's Bill Clinton saying, hey, I've got a friend who has a shirt factory in this part of Arkansas. Can you help him out? And, you know, at that point, what do you do? It's the, the governor of Arkansas who effectively has a knife to your throat. Um asking for asking for political favors it is the it's it's again i think the the political force that's corrupting the commercial force and not vice versa to, to, to extend that point though and it's something i want to bring up because i i think you know this is i want to make a point about you know people's riches certain riches and success you know a lot of it of course is is and most of it if not almost all to some degree is of course due to the, the bourgeois deal and the sense of bourgeois dignity in, in the free market sense but but there is sort of something in between, right? Like we do have this sort of this state sort of capitalist planning and intervention and investment that happens. That is to say, and I want to be very clear what, what I'm trying to get at here, is that you and I will agree that a, a, on the one hand, a bad government project can hemorrhage funds till tomorrow and beyond and be saved. You know, I think you use Amtrak as an example in, in your book, right? So so we know oh, that, that that's yeah. bad on, on the one hand. On the other hand, um, we, we definitely agree that uh, profits, if, if you're starting a business on a market and innovating, uh, is the invisible hand, as you guys say in the book, patting you on the back good job you've used these 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 resources wisely and and you and I will agree on that and and I like actually there's one example using the book where you say you know in terms of government spending or, or directed funds that like you know if there's 2.5 billion dollars used for for a Mars rover to do roving uh that, that's nice and all and it's fun but whether or not those resources could have been used elsewhere uh, is is really yeah. the question here so you know there's things on both sides we can point to government waste markets etc when, but there is this sort of thing that happens in between. How, how do we um, untangle when we look at certain American industries? And I can just pick some low-hanging fruit. Like you look at the industries and the vast amounts of money and funding and resources tied up in something like the defense complex. Uh, right. pe- yeah. uh, government does Pentagon funding. Pentagon funds Lockheed Project. Lockheed Project expands out to 70 different firms that all fund off that. I'm not asking whether or not you agree with this or not. I'm saying when you ask people to look around the world and and see uh you know the, the riches and things like that that we have now what should we keep an eye out for these things and really say hey there is a difference between someone starting a bagel shop and moving that up to a bagel empire versus a lockheed or a ge or something and and the different ways they've they've seized upon state power in that way or or vice versa yeah. but but i think it's still important to, to go into that a little more i think it's it's very entrenched in some areas and some industries yeah and, and so there are a couple of ways to think about it first um the so we mentioned like pessimism and things like that. So I, I'll, I'll be 42, uh, middle of next month, and so like I'm getting older and coping with with middle age, and realizing that um, 
things could be so much worse than they actually are. So Adam Smith said that he, he wrote that there's a great deal of ruin in a nation and a great deal of ruin in a world. He wrote this in the 18th century. Um, if it, when you look at something like the military industrial complex or uh, the industry I'm in, higher education um, is heavily, even at a private university, very heavily government funded. We have to spend an enormous amount of time and energy complying with various dictates from the Office of Civil Rights. Um, subsidies and programs like that, it's, it's you know, people respond to their incentives. If, if, if someone says, hey, here's some free money, people are going to take it. Um, so on one hand, just recognizing that things could be a lot worse, but um, also I think helping people understand what Thomas Sowell called the constrained vision. So in his 2007, well, no, excuse me, originally published in 1987, uh, but in his book, A Conflict of Visions, Thomas Sowell um, distinguishes between what he calls the constrained vision and the unconstrained vision. And the constrained vision is basically a vision that agrees with, with Hannah Arendt that every generation is invaded by that. Like every generation represents an invasion of civilization by tiny barbarians called children that has to be sort of civilized and things like that. That people are, people are, we're cognitively limited. We're morally limited. We tend to be, we tend towards self-interest. Um, the unconstrained vision says, well, let's just perfect everybody. Then that will make for a perfect society. I think though, that the, the question that we have to ask again, with respect to the military industrial complex or the educational industrial complex or what have you is, okay, well, what are the incentives that people are responding to and how do they respond to those incentives predictably? Of course, I'm sounding like an economist when I say this and then say, well, how do we get, how do we get the incentives right? How do we get the culture right? How do we, how do we, how do we help to build social institutions that don't rely on people suddenly waking up a lot better than they actually are in order for them to work. So, yeah. Um, so you see, you see people carrying protest on it, protest signs and things like that that say something like, you know, the system didn't fail. It was designed this way, or the system is broken. Well, okay. There's really not a system that no, that anyone is out there designing or creating or, or, um, or, or putting into play, the, the what we call the system is the unintended consequence of the interplay of a world of almost eight billion people pursuing their own, their own interests, subject to the constraints that they face, and um, that's a much harder problem than just saying, "Well, let's make people better, and then they won't." seek special privileges. So I guess one way to look at it is to say that, you know, across the world in different countries under different regulations, different structures, whatever the case may be, you always have these these forces of innovism and markets underneath. And to what degree there's sort of that pressure plate on on top, either trying to constrain it or uh, or, or control it or even plan it. That's really what you're saying. Let, let's focus on that right there. And then the the, re the rest of the, the the good stuff, if you will, underneath will will surely take care of us along the way. Right, and that's one of the points of the, of the book is it's not that it's not that people suddenly became more moral. Right. Um, people people have been people humans have been humans for as long as there have been humans. It's that we kind of changed what we valued. So we came to esteem. We kind of, we we came to esteem buying, selling, and innovating rather than feats of piety in the church or feats of arms on the battlefield. Um, we, we came to honor the people who built the better mousetrap or built the better iPad 
um, and began to afford, afford them at least some of the dignity that had formerly been reserved for people who just shed a lot of blood. And that ultimately created the great enrichment. Or, or, or came, to your point at the very beginning of the conversation, or came from the right family, or whatever the case may right. be, right? Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. I think that's a very yes. important point that, like you said, uh, relatively speaking, again, of course, there's corruption and, and bad stuff happening. But the fact that we generally say, oh, we value how much money that that person has or so-and-so has, you bring up a good point. Would I Do I value that over, say, someone's son because they're that person's kin? That's a really good point, right? That how, how our own values have changed over time in general. Yes. Um, again, so, so one of the things that we, or one of the deals that we talk about in the book is the aristocratic deal or the blue blood deal. And it basically, it's the idea, it, it gets to exactly this point. It's like, you know, honor, honor me, an aristocrat by virtue of who my father is and as his father was before him and so on and so forth. And, you know, go on the field of battle and die in my name, and maybe I won't have slaughtered you when, uh, you know, when, when all said and done. So we, 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 stopped, we stopped admiring royalty and started admiring – well, okay, I guess one way to put it, one way to put it would be like we, we, kept, we, we stopped spending so much time keeping up with kings and queens and more time keeping up with the Kardashians. Where we, yeah, where, where, where at least one of the things we honor in the Kardashians is just their ability to be commercial and successful. So, and, and that's 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 an eye roller of a somewhat alliterative uh, illustration, but it, it makes a point at least a, at least a little bit. And, and with that, our our time is actually pretty much wound down here. So I'm going to move us to the formal wrap up. I mean, we, we discussed a lot and we went in many different directions and, and that's a good thing. So, so, so let me try and bring the, the conversation full circle. In each episode, I want to make sure that the guest ultimately has the last word. So uh, let's try and put a finer point on our explanation of the question. So let me ask you, what, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to our conversation today and what they should take away about why are we rich? Like if you had one or two or a few things that you really wanted to leave people with, what would those ultimately be in all this? We're rich because we're free. This is something that Deirdre said in a bunch of different settings, something that I've, I've said in, in, in so many words in, in a bunch in other settings, but fundamentally at a very, very, very deep level, we are rich because we're free and because we value people who trade. We value people who trade. We value people who innovate. We buy low, we sell high. We value the movement of resources from low value uses to high value uses. And um, that's a, it's sort of a very, very high level. We're rich. We're rich because we're free because we don't expect people to ask our permission when they want to innovate or do something interesting. Um, <clears throat> more practically, more practically, you can have, you probably have a stronger positive impact on the world in the marketplace than you can in the political arena. And that does not in any way, shape or form flatter our vanity, but I'm coming to believe more and more that that's true. Art Carden, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thank you for having me. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.